For December 23rd, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 599. Six, five, four, three, seven, two, nine, one, eight. time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, it was a time of podcasting. The scrappy band of your smart, funny friends from the internet gathered together, huddled virtually in space, wondering if they would ever make it to 600 podcasts and thereby, in so doing, save the galaxy. It began with acting general of the podcast resistance, Matt Rather, that's me, and uh, his podcasting friends who will introduce themselves and uh, explain their first, first experience, how they were introduced to the Star Wars universe, first in the alphabet, a podcaster from long, long ago. You haven't seen him since podcast episode five or six. It's Ben Adams. Hello, Ben. Oh, General Rather, General Adams reporting for duty. Hello. General, field promotions for everyone. General. <laughs> uh, so I, so I'm, I'm doing my first Star Wars memory. So that, that is, I appropriately enough for the season, was Christmas. Uh, when the I believe it was TNT would do a, a Christmas marathon of Star Wars every year, and we didn't have cable in my house, but my grandparents did, and so we would retreat to their den and get to watch maybe thirty minutes of Star Wars at a time. Uh, and so, for whatever reason, I remember both like the first thirty minutes of Jedi and the first thirty minutes of Empire, seeing those about a half dozen times before seeing any of the movies all the way through. So that that is my memory. It's just I knew Tatooine was a thing. I knew the you know breaking into Jabba's palace, and I remember the land speeders before getting the the, the rest of the gist of the movies. So you got you got a Leia bikini costume really at an inappropriately young age, is what you're telling me. In looking back, I think that's probably accurate. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then coming coming out of the, the in an X-wing, flying out of the the miasma of space smoke and space fog it's uh it's matt belinky here to save the day matt what is your first uh what is your first memory of star wars general hey uh by the way uh matt i have something very very important i need to tell you but only when nobody else is listening and i probably won't get to it Um, got it so my first memory of star wars i actually went to see the return of the jedi when i was three in theaters hadn't seen any of the other movies i was very uh confused and traumatized by it but my real jam when i was growing up was the ewok adventure otherwise known as caravan of courage which is a direct television 1984 movie featuring almost entirely the ewoks the ewoks were like a couple human uh friends a little girl and a teenage boy who are trying to save their parents who've crash landed on Endor and been captured by uh, some kind of horrible monster. And it is a weird movie, which mainly I actually was recently thinking about it because the movie is narrated by Burl Ives, who is mainly known for narrating uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and singing the titular song. So he is like, in my mind, like most most people think of him as like the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer guy, but I think of him as like the guy who explains to you the Ewok religion. Um, 
So, yeah, he, he walks. I, I know intellectually, I know as a fact that a lot of people hate Ewoks the same way that I know that like my skin is crawling with microscopic bugs and bacteria, but it just doesn't seem like in my heart, I don't really believe it. I don't really know how that could possibly be true. Either one of those things. You don't think, you don't think that you are a colony of midi-chlorians. I, I, if anyone can look at the face of Wicket with his little his little hats and his little spear and not like have their heart melt by by both his his uh, cute fluffiness fluffy exterior and the heart of a lion that beats within, then like I don't know, we're, we were watching the same movie. <laughs> uh, excellent, and uh, we have also join joining us running running to have rallied all the troops from all the galaxies coming. Back in the nick of time, when all themes seems lost, it's General Peter Fenzel. General, 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 General. <laughs> so I have vague memories at a beach house in my childhood of watching the garbage crusher scene, and I think that was my first and only encounter with a Star Wars movie for a number of years. And from there, it was a doorway in through the action figures and the and the merchandise. I remember having a Star Wars Dark Empire wall calendar, which would have placed it around like 1991 or 1992. This was, by the way, the original story in which Luke turned to the dark side after the events of Return of the Jedi, uh, which is, a you know, a sort of trope or sort of way of telling the story that's been repeated in various contexts over and over again and i guess most recently is manifest in the character of kylo ren and how that all works but uh after that i became enthusiastic about it and went back and watched all the movies and bought a whole bunch of the books you know and and got into a bunch of the extended universe stuff and uh was a bit of a star wars fanatic for a few years in my early teenage years and i think a lot of my uh my Star Wars pedigree comes from there. That and an overabundance of affection for Count Dooku, who only grows in my esteem over the years as uh, perhaps the best middle manager that I've ever seen in film, uh, if not the most enviable in his uh, tea party with robots and aliens. So <laughs> I'm a big fan of Dooku. Uh, not entirely sure why, um, perhaps because uh, when it gets right down to it, uh, it all gets a little bit silly, maybe, or maybe it's just because of the in- impeccable sense of style. So that is my Star Wars uh, pedigree, as it were. And for for what it's worth, I'll give mine. It's it's uh, having um, episode, what is now episode four and was then called Star Wars on uh, uh, Betamax video cassette and watching it. And from my just whatever childhood recollection I have, the scene that. Uh, sticks out to me is putting on the stormtrooper outfits and, um, you know, uh, infiltrating, uh, infiltrating the death star or was it, was it an Imperial cruiser or was it the death star that they actually infiltrated? I think it was a, a cruiser, wasn't it? Um, that they, uh, uh, that, that they got on and, and outcome the boys in their, in their, you know, fabulous white, outfits um for whatever reason that's the thing i remember a gambit which would have paid off much better than the plant never mind never mind i i i don't need to get into into this uh this but matt film how yet. is finn going to pretend to be a stormtrooper how is that even possible uh, yeah i know it wasn't you know he would he would never uh fit in it would be clear from his movements from his highly individualistic movements that he was not uh he was not actually one of them but 
But wait, my friends, long ago a prophecy was foretold that one would come who would restore the demographic to Star Wars, who would restore balance to overthinking, who would carry on the mighty overthinking at power of Matt Belinke, and that one is among us. Matt's son, Oliver, joins us. Oliver, uh, you are now a general of the Resistance. What is your uh, first Star Wars memory? Surely it comes from long ago, like the 1970s. <laughs> Hello. Um, my first Star Wars memory was probably, I think when I was four, I, uh, I watched the, uh, the fifth movie, number five, um, on demand, like on the TV, just because it was on. And I remember being like very scared when, uh, when Luke got his hand cut off and that was like, I had like a nightmare about it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So you didn't even know that hands coming off was like a thing that you should worry about. But then yeah. all of a sudden you're like, well, now <laughs> yeah. that I know that that's an option. <laughs> now, now that that's a possibility and you've been, and you've been terrorized by that ever since I, I gather. Yeah, though, I mean, I'm over it now, but... <laughs> I don't know. There was a lot of really traumatic hand material uh, with the Emperor and his sort of, his, you know, manicure uh, in this in this film. So, you know, the hand obsession yeah. continues with Star Wars, right? Yeah, the hand in uh, this movie is definitely uh, exciting. All right. We are, we are uh, here um, to discuss Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, surely the last Star Wars film that will ever be made. And now that the Star Wars universe is complete and there will be no more uh, additions to it ever, we can, um, you know, we can finally dig in and, and talk about it. Obviously, uh, there are no, uh, there are no holds barred with spoilers for any part of the, any part of the, uh, Star Wars universe with the exception perhaps of the Mandalorian, um, you know, which, uh, still has one episode to, uh, who still has one episode to, to be published. So, uh, it is a time honored, um, uh, d- tradition among fans of Star Wars to sort of rank the, the films in order. We now have nine films. And Oliver, I would like to ask you to do the honors on behalf of overthinking it. And now that the Star Wars universe is complete and no other Star Wars films will ever be made, tell us what uh, the canonical ranking by which we will all abide uh, for the rest of our days. <laughs> what, what is the, the canonical ranking of Star Wars films in your eyes all right so i'm gonna say six five four three seven two nine one eight <laughs> can you say the names of the movies <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. so that's that's so, yeah return of the I jedi i don't know whether to be shocked okay. or not <laughs> so you have return of the jedi um empire strikes back a new hope um, I forgot what the seventh one was called. No, wait, then, that's, then it's Revenge of the Sith, right? That's three. Yeah, Revenge of the Sith is three. Um, Force Awakens seven, is number Force seven. Awakens. Force Awakens. Um, so what did you just say? You said two next, two, right? That's, two next. that's Attack of the Clones. Attack of the Clones. Yes. <laughs> and then Rise of Skywalker. Um, Phantom, Phantom Menace. Menace. And then, I don't know what eight is. The Last, <laughs> the last Jedi. It's called... 
Yeah, the last, oh, the last, the last what the it's last called? Jedi. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A specter, a specter is haunting a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> a specter <laughs> of you know democracy. So wait, but but there are there are no there are four more Star Wars movies that aren't in this oh, list. Are we doing these? I was hoping that nobody would pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> like we gotta like like figure out where Solo ranks. So so it's Solo, right? Rogue One, and then of course, as you said, Caravan of Courage and oh, Ewok we're... Adventure. And then you forgot the Ewok Adventure Battle for Endor starring Wilford Brimley, which is the sequel to The Caravan of Courage. And they go to a castle yeah. and fight a witch. Uh, <laughs> I, am, I am sure that had I known that existed, had like my parents gotten the video of a blockbuster, it would have been my favorite movie for most of my childhood. But I, literally until I was a teenager, nobody told me there was a second made-for-TV Ewok movie. They were protecting you, Matt. They were protecting you. I mean, I guess we don't have to include them in the official ranking, but I will ask Oliver, do you see Rogue One or Solo or have any thoughts about them? Um, I think Rogue, I thought that Rogue One was pretty good. I definitely enjoyed that. Um, I didn't really like Solo, though. I just felt like the plot was kind of boring. Gotcha, gotcha. You didn't like so, the revelation that the Millennium Falcon has a cape closet? Um, no, I mean, that that's exciting, but, like, <laughs> that's probably the most exciting thing. I was somehow hoping that would come back in this one, that, like, they were going to be stranded on a planet in the middle of nowhere, and they were going to discover, like, Lando's old cape closet, and it was going to, it was going to get them out of a jam. They're going to, like, sew the capes together to, like, a solar sail. Lando, uh, yeah, Lando has, Lando continues to have great sartorial sense in, in this film, including his, uh, his, you know, get up that he has on the burning man planet. And that's, uh, you know, um, pretty good. All right. Well, so like I, I, Oliver, I confess I'm, I'm, I'm surprised to see nine down there with one. Cause I, w- I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't put it that low myself because at least like you know it's funny the the i i watched actually um matt and i watched together uh eight watched the last jedi together in preparation uh for this when he was visiting me and we we thought you know it's exciting in very in very small increments and doesn't add up to doesn't add up to anything much on account of not much really happens to to move the needle um the you know the slow speed chase and and all of that the um the but this one was so relentlessly kinetic uh that it had all of those you know fun exciting star wars zoomy zooms and and you know pew pew pews and uh big big booms, you know, that, um, you know, many things, many things, uh, blew up in this particular one that for me was, you know, I don't know, at least a little more exciting. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think that the action in the movie was like really good, but I think that I care, like I care more about like the plot than like the action, I guess. Well, fair, fair See, enough. Let's talk about the that youth, plot. And that's from the youth, and that's not what people think the youth think, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, we got to make loud noises and flashing lights. It's all got to be, you know, mid Pikachu fight the entire time through the movie. Just like, just like the character standing there with its eyes wide open and its mouth open, with everything flashing around it at all times, and that's how. <laughs> I feel like if you are somebody who cares about the plot first and foremost, like you're not going to walk away happy from this. Like, here's the thing: I have a, a test that I went into this movie with, and I, I told people this out of time, and it was just going to be the Knights of Ren test, which is that if this movie does not explain to my satisfaction who the Knights of Ren are. <laughs> 
then the movie is the movie is garbage and, and it did not no because it's like they, they went out of their way to be all mystery boxy about this mysterious force that is not I think they 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 came out in interviews around episode seven and said like the Knights of Ren they're not a Sith organization these are something new that's why the lightsaber looks different that's why they don't call themselves Darth this is like a whole new force for evil in the galaxy and I've been waiting for this sort of payoff from that and they really just sort of swept the Knights of Ren under the rug they didn't I don't think the Knights of Ren had one line. They may not be able to talk. They may have taken a vow of silence, except for, no, no, of course, they totally Kylo. explained it. This is what the Knights of Ren are. The Knights of Ren are Kylo Ren's buddies from boarding school, whom he gives jobs to after they graduate. And they go around with him and, and commit emotionally exhausting acts of uh, war crime and, like, violations of human rights and general savagery, right? They then vanish for most of the most important events of Kylo Ren's life, uh, probably because they're just busy, because that's why people vanish sometimes, friends drift apart, and they show up at the end to help him with his final struggle, and then he has a brief change of heart and murders all of them without discussing anything with them. It's like, you know, because he's showing up at that point, right, he's, a, he's, you know, he's Ben Solo again, he's given himself over to the light side of the Force, so he he is, it's essentially... Which is all a, about murder, by the way, that the light side of the Force is all about murdering yeah. your friends. Well, the younglings, especially, <laughs> but the uh, not the younglings, the um, the uh, yeah, but it's it's essentially a wedding, right? Like between Kylo and Ray, because they're sort of the they're the sort of OTP, but but only but none, but like uh, you know. Uh, as as Ray discovers when she enters the the chamber of secrets and uh, faces down the basilisk um, with her force healing powers, uh, none the, uh, neither can live while the other survives. So you know it's it's going to be kind of a dark wedding, but uh, they, a real emo wedding. But uh, it's like it's like he murders his whole bachelor party, his whole wedding yeah. party. You know, like it's the, the, it's the Jonah Hill Michael Sarah escalator scene from Superbad. But with knives. <laughs> it's just like, well, sorry, sorry, male friends. I have to depart your company for female companionship. This, <laughs> this is why there wasn't you know an all-male sequel to Bridesmaids well, called well, Groomsmen. Really, it's, it's, the thro- it's the throne room fight from Last Jedi, except they're just in two different rooms. Right. But they're yeah, also totally, just fighting yeah. lights, separate lightsaber battles. And just like 10,000 dudes who have shown up to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. This, you had an objection. To yeah, this. who are those people? That confusing. Think it was that confusing? <laughs> no, no. So, so what's introduced in this movie, which is a strain of credulity for sure, but not like an entirely untenable one. And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong on this, or if you think you didn't, you didn't pick this up, right? Which is that being a Sith operates like being the Highlander, and when you kill the previous Sith Lord in rage, usually by embracing the dark side of the Force, the reason that the Sith Lord is into it is because their consciousness flows into your body, and it turns out that this is a chain of boss murders that goes back to like the dawn of time, and so every Sith Lord has like a chanting, screaming stadium of like murder suiciders constantly living in their head, which would kind of explain why they're so crazy. Um, and, and that those those people watching are all of the past Sith Lords and Sith Apprentices who have all been murdered. I guess not Sith Apprentices because you don't see Darth Maul or Dooku or Vader in that scene. So it's I guess it's all the Sith Lords that are all like preceded Palpatine. And I suppose maybe like other Sith people who might have been caught into that sort of soul net or whatever, who are who are really excited because now they get to live inside Daisy Ridley. 
which is really inappropriate for a bunch of a bunch of people to be cheering about. I guess it's well. Wait, it's does of- that is that? I mean, is that what happens at the end? Like I I've you know said before. I think on this podcast that Star Wars is a movie about about uh, circles and triangles, um, and I'm talking about about a new hope here right like the 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 triangle of the de- of the um imperial star cruiser destroyer thingy thing and and all those they stay triangles right and then the circle of the of the planet that gets destroyed or the circle of the death star which is you know um sort of a false planet uh you know the circle of the the moon of endor or the two sons of tatooine which actually you know sort of fun effect at the end when they're stacked on top of each other like bb8 with him in the in the foreground right and and what ray discovers at the end of the movie is that if you've put four triangles together their points touching what you get is an x and the secret all along was to cross the lightsabers and that would have solved the problem from the from the very beginning if they had only you know fought uh, off the dark side with two lightsabers spicy handed if you will two lightsabers you know the uh the x the unstoppable power of the x Two uh, lightsabers. Can I can I point out the obvious, <laughs> which, which is that Luke Skywalker blows up the Death Star with the unstoppable power of the X, which is the X that is the X-wing fighter that he flies in. Good point. And, I'll, I'll, and the less obvious, which is that the, the holding the lightsabers like that, as I recall, maybe because it's one of the most important events in the whole series, is how Anakin kills Count Dooku. I believe, right? Doesn't he hold his I mean, an X and he kind of pulls him apart and murders him? Well, it's, so a, it's do, that's too like uh, he's beheading him from both sides at once, as I recall. Yes, yes, because yeah. one because beheading him only once is not excessive enough for those movies. <laughs> you need to, you need to, every frame just needs to be so rich with imagery that you need to be chopping his head off twice in each direction. Uh, it is the attack of the clones, after all, not attack of the one things. Although that's in Revenge of the Sith, as it were. But yeah, no, no, I, I mean. The thing is, you're saying that that you're joking, Matt, but you're not joking, right? That like Star Star Wars movies tend to be highly visually symbolic and tend to deal a lot in shape, especially the original series. And and you think about the the window in the Emperor's office being this very distinct shape that yep. gets kind of recalled in this movie. Um, and, and the prequels get kind of a little lost in it because they're putting so much on screen that that it's really hard to pick out individual shapes. Uh, sometimes, but um, but they bring it back a little bit in this one with a little bit more of the the uh, the kind of shapes of well, things. The, 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 the prequels. Oh, worth, sorry, yeah, Ben. It's worth contrasting the X that finishes the movie of lightsabers with the evil Ray, the glimpse of Empress Ray that we get. She has the two lightsabers, but they are. I think they start out parallel, and then she like flips them out into a Darth Maul like double lightsaber. Ooh, yeah, but they're never crossed, so that that's for whatever reason the X is good, and the parallel or in line lightsaber is bad. Yeah, the 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 Leonardo, uh, no, sorry, the Donatello bow staff, you know, um, lights lightsaber that Darth Maul and and Empress Ray and Vampire Ray uh, use to uh, yeah to do, to do this. Yeah, 
I mean, I think that it's important, not only the shape of the two lightsabers together, but the fact of whose lightsabers they are, that it's very much Luke Skywalker's lightsaber and Leia Skywalker's lightsaber, which, um, which, which we, we all didn't know remember, existed. Right, which we all remember Leia's, Leia's lightsaber being very important to the plot of these movies. Yeah, Previous. but I, this movie, I think in the final act, leans in really hard, and especially in the final, what, two minutes, to the idea that like Ray has truly become the child of both those mentor figures which explains why, even though logic and perhaps good taste dictates that they should have just kept Carrie Fisher out of this movie altogether, I think to tell the story that J.J. Abrams clearly wanted to tell, you needed more scenes with Leia because, I mean, they barely been together, right? I mean, before this movie, she has like a couple brief conversations with Ray. And I can't even remember in, in eight at the very end, right? They have the, the final scene together in the Falcon, but like to really establish that like Leia is so influential on Ray, you needed this whole sort of like time has elapsed and Leia has been this mentor figure while she's figuring out the force. Um, so I, yeah. I don't know guys, what do you, what do you, what do you think of uh, What's the question? Oh, I was just going to, I was just going to ask, what did you, what did you think of Carrie Fisher in this movie? It, I'm, I'm putting Carrie Fisher in air quotes there. I mean, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. The, the whether I don't know whether she was deep faked or stock footage or CGI'd or all three, but every single scene she was in was unwatchable. They were terrible. It was obvious that the person. It was. It felt like watching Liam Neeson talk to Jar Jar Binks. It was just a. It was disaster. Uh, now, granted, I like this movie. I'm making fun of it a lot, but I like this movie a great deal. But those scenes are garbage, is my opinion. <laughs> and and this whole like de aging actors. This whole idea that we're going to use computers to break the actors' unions is getting getting on my nerves. <laughs> right? Like this idea that, like, well, if all we do is if we can license the likenesses of old stars from dead people, then we don't have to negotiate with living actors, and then we can, you know, just get around all of it, and we can get rid of actors entirely because they're so expensive and difficult yeah. to deal with. Could somebody um, explain something about about Leia to me, where that she decides? at one point in the movie that that she needs to give her life and the reason she needs to give her life is to distract her son long enough so that her adoptive daughter can murder her son um it's sort of like that scene in in, in the good child where where the woman has to decide whether she's gonna let macaulay culkin drop or elijah wood drop right whether she's gonna keep her her actual son who is actually this movie is a lot like the good son oh the good son yeah 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 i was thinking it's not called the good child yeah yeah Man, we, and, yeah. we can just call this trilogy the Good Son trilogy because it's all about Kylo. So, yeah. so here's what here's what I think happens is that Kylo, that the deal with the Force, right, is that once you start going down the road of the Force, so so the one interesting idea that I thought was introduced in the Force Awakens, and and I think we can get into a broader kind of conversation about what this sequel trilogy is all about and and what the story actually is. Maybe not beat for beat because we don't have two hours for this episode, but it's not, you know, the best of both worlds, part one. But uh, but just what what exactly is the story is trying to tell? Because the one interesting thing that gets introduced in the beginning in, in the first one is that, to me at least, that the light side of the force is more similar to the dark side of the force than you thought. In previous movies, it's presented as the light side of the force is a product of your moral sense, your self-restraint, and your ability to kind of do what you know is right despite your urges. And then the dark 
side of the force is a temptation that is trying to get at your kind of base desires and to abandon the light side of the force uh, in favor of like hatred or greed or fear and suffering and all of those things that Yoda puts in sequence with various conjunctions and adjectives and and whatnot. Uh, this leads to that. This leads to that, et cetera, et cetera. But in The Force Awakens, they introduced the idea that actually you could be trying to use your better judgment to be on the dark side, and then the light side can also kind of intervene and pull you in its direction. And in the Star Wars cosmology, it seems like if you start going in a direction, the universe reinforces the direction. It's a sort of it's a sort of virtue ethic where if you start acting in line with the dark side, the dark side will like seize you and really, really strongly influence your thinking. You'll eventually lose your autonomy to the force if you're sort of sensitive to the force because you made one or two bad decisions and now your whole life is a disaster. Or, you know, and it was never really posited early on that you might make one or two good decisions and then your whole life is fixed, right? Uh, or at least that you've become a, a celibate monk, which is, I suppose, the the outcome. At least, that, and that's sort of part part of this movie. But um, but the the Force Awakens introduces the idea that Kylo Ren wants to be on the dark side because he's edgy and emo and likes Darth Vader and hates his dad and all this other nonsense. Um, but he feels the pull of the light side because the force is bigger than people. And it's like, oh, what direction is this going to go in? Right. I think that's interesting. So I think what's supposed to be happening is that Kylo Ren isn't really entirely in charge of himself. Uh, once he goes down the path of the dark side, he's being influenced by it. He's being pulled forward by it. Uh, that's what we would expect based on the return of the Jedi and the way that the return of the Jedi kind of hashes out the consequences of doing something like killing your father in anger. Um, right. And so that's what we think he's doing. And so even if he wanted to not do it, he kind of can't because he's kind of drugged up on dark side. And what Leia's death does is kind of abolish the the interference in his thought and kind of give him a moment of clarity. And like in that moment of clarity, he kind of re remembers things that matter to him that were being suppressed by the, the presence of the dark side. Now, this is me going to extreme lengths to try to make all this make sense. But that was what I felt in the moment, right? Which is that Leia was sort of doing what Luke does in The Last Jedi, which is using up her Jedi life force in order to kind of effect, to create a big effect in the force, a big, big sort of ripple in the force in opposition to the dark side. And in this case, it was sort of like instant rehab. You know, it was basically like dark side Narcan that was being injected into Kylo Ren to like counteract the effects of the dark side on his decision making with the idea that he would then go do the right thing. And the question is, Leia presumably believed that there is a prophecy or a vision that if she became a Jedi, it would kill her son. Of course, she didn't decide just not to have children. She still had a son. Um, and so she finishes becoming a Jedi master in training Rey. And then when she uses her powers to turn Kylo Ren to the light side, he does die as a result of this. But does do you think that she knows that that's what's going to happen is my question. Do you think that Princess Leia knows when she kind of beams her spirit out there to give her son a moment of moral clarity so that he can kind of leap back onto the right side of the fence that she is actually killing him? Uh, or because or, I wonder if she doesn't actually think that and she thinks this is actually a great idea and it's a case of the sort of prophecy coming true despite her best intentions kind of thing. Um, or is nobody else thinking on that level about this movie because they're too distracted by the characters who show up for no reason and leave for no reason? Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, g g giving the scene some credit that the the way I would interpret that is because the way this is presented is he is about to kill Ray. He's got her on the ropes. 
he is about to kill Ray. And I think she senses that in this moment, this is like the tipping point that if he kills Ray, he is gone forever. Okay. And so this is that the this is a soul saving method. And it doesn't really matter if he dies after that. So long as she can, because it's kind of a Christian or Catholic view of the force where, because, because the original series has this too, where it doesn't matter of all the bad stuff Darth Vader does, because in the minutes before his death, he makes the right decision and turns to the light side. He makes one, he makes a perfect act of contrition, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, and so I think she sees Kylo kind of careening off of the cliff and the important thing is just to pull him back from the cliff, regardless of even if he dies a minute later by being stabbed by Ray or whatever, it doesn't matter as long as she kind of saves his his forced soul. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I kind of want to interrogate the idea that, like, you can you can deathbed repent the dark side and it makes everything OK, because in Return of the Jedi, sure, in Luke's mind, probably in Leia's mind, that, like, Anakin gets this... Re- in fact, I mean, I think it helps that he gets to see the Force ghost of Anakin, and so he has proof positive that everything worked out and he went to Jedi heaven. But I noticed that, like, when he's when he's ceremonially bur- burning Darth Vader's body, he's the only one there, right? It's not like Anakin gets buried with full Jedi honors and everybody comes to, to uh, you know hail him as like the belated savior of the galaxy. And as far as we know that like in the years following the war, Darth Vader is still like a a name to be reviled and feared as I'm sure. I mean, here's an interesting sort of counterfactual that like you can imagine a way that the, the events at the end could have gone down and Ray doesn't make it. And Ben Solo does like a fully sort of, I don't want to say redeemed because I feel like that's tricky because he's got the blood of probably billions on his hands indirectly certainly like he's killed you know probably hundreds or thousands of people you know close combat and so that like i don't know if he could go back to the resistance and be like hey guys i want to i want to join up and help rebuild the galaxy you know i don't know if anyone besides ray would ever really accept him yeah i don't think anybody would accept him i know that's yeah i actually had that thought in at the end when they were kissing i was like wait is kylo just gonna like roll on after having killed all these people. But then of course, narratively, that's why he has to get killed off because it would be super awkward if Kylo Ren is just like showing up at the resistance celebration party. Yeah. I was wondering, I was wondering, there's no room. There's no room. I I was thinking there's no room for a resistance truth and reconciliation commission in in this movie. Like that's not something star Wars can do the way Ben and I was squaring that circle in my head is I was thinking that he would retreat to the Luke Skywalker Island with a sort of appropriate retreat after a, you know, a lifetime of evil. I mean, how old is he? You know, 30 who, 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 who among us didn't do a lifetime of evil by the time they were 30, you know, and spend <laughs> the rest of our lives repenting for it. No, the, the, after all the terrible things he's done that like, it would have, it would be appropriate to retreat and to, to join the, the, you know, Muppet faced nuns who live on the, the Jedi Island, uh, and drink blue milk, um, and apparently conceal X wings under, underneath the water. Um, that the, uh, you know, that that's, that that's what they were, they were going to go. But in, in a, uh, I was actually a little bit satisfied that they, when, you know, having established for this film and it applies to only this film that Jedi can like resuscitate or heal one another, which just doesn't make any sense given the things that we've seen previously, um, in the movie. And that specifically, specifically with the emperor, given what happened to Luke, you can regrow hands. 
specifically <laughs> hands can be re you know you know with a better manicure and everything but that like at least they gave like the kind of the one for one you know it fl- it flowed out of of Ben and and into Ray I was wondering if there was were going to be any rules about that when Ray was healing the basilisk down in the chamber of secrets in book two of the Harry Potter uh, series where you know the the life force flows out of her she I gave him a little bit of my life the force flows out of her uh, and into the uh, into the the snake beast um, that uh, you know that that like um, I, I was wondering if that like she only has so much of that like it's a reserve that has to be replenished somehow or maybe you just are born with what you have and you you give it away give it away give it away now and, and that like and that at the end that yes in fact you know reviving someone from the dead costs uh, cost Ben his life I thought was good in a film that that did not really traffic in uh, you know in sticking to its guns as far as you know killing killing major characters right like Chewie comes back um, C three PO just misses a you know one uh, you know forty eight hours or something like that uh, not even. Right. The, the, the film takes place over the course of, they say, like in 18 hours, the thing is, uh, the, the barrage is going to start on a galactic scale. So, um, you know, the, the bombardment that is going to begin from all of those, uh, planet killing, all of those planet killing cannons, the, um, all, all of the, all of the the imperial phalluses um, are going to you know blow up planets, and so eighteen hours, right? That's the countdown. That's the time lock on this movie, and we have to we have to do it in in there. Um, there were others, weren't there? Other uh, instances of the well, film pulling its punches. In one in one of the big, uh, I mean, as one counterexample, though there are a lot of examples of the film pulling its punches. One counterexample and another like deep undermining of the larger story arc of these this sequel this uh, sequel series is Hux goes down like a punk, which is just so disappointing because I loved Hux. Hux was the best. Um, am I again? Am I the only person who liked Hux? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. I mean, um, it would have been we were denied a scene of Hux like in the resistance base sneering at everybody yeah. like after he seeks asylum or whatever is the spy. Like, I, I feel deeply cheated by that. Fact. Or even yeah, like, I mean, Hux or like a tank. Kylo Hux showdown for the ages, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Richard, yeah, or no, I wanted him like uh, the the Richard E. Grant kind of casual, offhanded execution of him, you know, with a blaster hit square in the chest, right? Like, I I would have loved a like a, a screamy, scenery chewing over the top Hux monologue because Hux has been ridiculous from the very very beginning, and like has put so much has put so much saliva, <laughs> you know, so so much uh, articulation of final consonant has shredded his larynx time and time again for the, for these films and he he deserved an al pacino uh esque ending he deserved to go out like scarface you know and not the way that he uh uh not the way that he did um anyway uh, Ad- admiral hux morning till i join you uh but um richard e grant as the you know uh slightly effeminate uh super you know super posh kind of whispery british uh super admiral or whatever he was um 
uh, was was phenomenal. Was really a very good a good characterization from a really good actor. I I just want to you know shout out uh, Richard E. Grant there. You my boy, Richard E. Grant. Uh, you know, one thing I one thing I really liked about Hux and I thought was going to be critical as we got into the end game is because if you think about like the the weak spots in the first order or like the ways that you could take them out, number one is that like a lot of their officers are probably either Hux or a lot like Hux, which is that they're sort of selfish careerists that are just sort of like they would rather you know, they would rather be king of the ashes than than um, have to sort of like, you know, serve under Kylo Ren. And so, like, their loyalty is is paper thin. And, of course, the, the second thing is the fact that every single stormtrooper is apparently, like, on the verge of mutiny, you know, which we thought it was just thin. <laughs> but it comes out in this movie. It's like, oh, no, no, no. All the stormtroopers are, like, a second away from, like, basically. And I, I could not believe they didn't play that card. Because it feels yeah, like they introduced that character solely to have a, a way that, like, they could have Finn get on a loudspeaker at the end, the way, like, Captain America gets on the loudspeaker in The Winter Soldier, and give everybody a rousing speech. So, like, guys, I need you all to mutiny. Like, I know that you don't want to serve the First Order. Now is the time. Join us now. Join Robin Hood. So, I... <laughs> I noticed that, too. I find it impossible to believe that there was not a draft of the script that included something exactly like that, because I think there's at least three different points in this movie where people go at great pains to talk about the First Order's, like, child-stealing program, where, like, that's how they're staffing their ranks is by, like, stealing children and raising them up as stormtroopers that then become mutineers like Finn and uh, the, the woman that he meets. I thought for sure, because they were really awkwardly worked into the plot, and so I thought for sure that that was the shoe that was going to drop to save the rebellion, was that all the stormtroopers going to mutiny, but then it just, nothing happened. Yeah, because see, here's the thing about everything that the Emperor runs. Everybody who works for the Emperor thinks he has some sort of plan, but really the Emperor is a crazy wizard. (laughs) And as a crazy wizard, his main goal is to ruin everything and laugh. (laughs) And, and, And it is just the ultimate prank pulled on everybody in his whole organization that the entire thing is set up for failure from day one, right? And like all the Imperial officers, all of the faithful people, uh, yeah, you know what? Yeah, sure. He stole a bunch of babies and gave them a job that was reserved previously for mentally programmed clones that grew up in tanks, uh, right? Like thinking this was their sole purpose. And it turns out that they are terrible at it and that they have mental breakdowns when you just order them to commit atrocities over and over again with no sleep or pay or anything, right? So it's just like, uh, I don't know. I did appreciate that. But yeah, I think I think it speaks to a larger issue, which is that Finn is introduced in the in Force Awakens as like a major protagonist of this story. And past the Force Awakens, they just have no they appear to have no plan as to what was going to happen to him or why he mattered. And I, I find that all very disappointing. So um, but yeah. that, there you go. We've been talking over Oliver for a long time. I want I want to hear more about what Oliver thinks, I guess, about all the crazy things we're saying and how little they all matter. Or, uh, or whether he had any takes on any of the topics that we're talking about. Um, all right. Well, I was thinking about Hux and how he's sort of uh, similar to, like, Darth Vader in a way where it's like in, like, his last moments, he sort of, like, does something heroic, you know, um, and how. But, like, I don't know if that redeems him because he's done, like, so many, like, horrible things. You know, he's killed, like, millions of people. So I think it's sort of this, the same thing with him as it is with like other characters in the series and he does something heroic for the worst possible reasons though (laughs) 
<laughs> but still, he gets no redemption. He gets no redemption, right? Like, yeah. Hulk's just gets Hulk's pulls a Darth Vader and gets like utterly humiliated for it. Yeah. <laughs> he, he doesn't even get shot in the arm, right? He gets shot in the leg and he has yep. to crawl around to the ground. It would be like someone. It would be like someone like giving the giving like uh, you know the product roadmap, the eighteen month product roadmap for Facebook to Snapchat, and being like, "Yo, uh, I don't care if Snapchat wins or TikTok or whatever. Uh, I just want Mark Zuckerberg to lose." <laughs> that's uh, that's the only reason I'm I'm doing this. And when I put it in those terms, I guess uh, it actually makes a little bit of sense. Yeah. Can we talk about how? The Emperor has – I, I feel like what really drove it home for me is when the, the First Order uh, the High Command, the, the sort of executive council of the First Order is talking about whether they should team up with Palpatine. And somebody is like, oh, if we join forces with him, he's going to increase our forces 10,000 folds. <laughs> it was some ridiculous multiplier than that. Right? I mean I'm not making this up. It wasn't like, oh, he's going to double our forces. It's like this is going to be like an exponential. But it's like if that's the case, then it's like the First First Order was always just a distraction. It was always just a phantom menace, perhaps, that was meant to, like, keep everybody busy for the 40 years it was going to take to build these 10,000 ships, you know, way in the way in the Dimension X or wherever it was. Yeah. I also <laughs> um, I feel like it like they made it like pretty clear in episode six that Palpatine was like dead. And then I feel like they sort of just like brought him back so they have like, you know, like a main bad guy to do. And they sort of did like the same thing with uh, Darth Maul because like everyone loved him. And but he, it was like pretty clear that he was killed off. But like in like some of the Clone Wars movies, they just sort of like brought him back just like because. Yeah. Yeah. There's some serious retconning going on here. It was because like one of the I recently rewatched episode eight and I felt like maybe the most critical thing to come out of episode eight is the revelations that Ray's parents were nobody. Right. <laughs> that this is a big emotional cathartic scene where where, you know, uh, Kylo tells her, like, you've always known it to be true. Say it. Like, your parents, they were nobody. They don't matter. Like, you are a nobody. And it seemed pretty clear that, like, the message there is that, like, you know, anybody can be born and be the chosen one, right? That you could be, you know, like, it, it's not it's not a dynastic thing. It's like maybe the Force just sort of picks you at random. It could pick anybody, just like a random scavenger on a random planet. Um, and it's not about – and, of course, this movie does a huge U-turn on that, right? <laughs> well, and the idea I is mean, like, oh, no, there's a, there's a very good reason why Ray has these powers. There's a very good reason why she's important to the story. It's not just that she's, like, happy to get win, – win the Mitochlorian lottery. Right. But it seemed pretty clear in The Force Awakens that there was some sort of secret to her, right? Like, I don't know. I think a lot of the problems go back to The Force Awakens, not, clear, not like – apparently having a plan as to where how this was all going to work out like that shouldn't be the kind of thing that you should be able to change in midstream right like uh oh you know because it's everyone was talking after the force awakens that ray had some sort of secret parentage right and uh oh she's obi-wan's kid oh she's the emperor's kid that was a popular theory because there were all these hints uh and 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 the idea just that you could just sort of casually trot in and say, actually, it was all a red herring and the hints meant nothing. I mean, it's encouraging, but it didn't fit. It didn't fit then. and It doesn't fit now. So, I mean, I sort of understand why they would backtrack off of it, although I guess admitting the mistake makes it feel even more like a mistake rather than just something that was confusing. Well, uh, yeah, but or was, like, or a change. I, I, I confess, I liked that twist in Last Jedi, like because it was a neat inversion of 
what happens in episode four and five, because it's not like there are clues that Luke Skywalker is Darth Vader's son in the original movies. It's a left turn. It's you think he comes from nowhere. Oh, no, no, no. He comes from this, you know, powerful parentage. So I always thought it was a neat inversion in eight and or seven and eight that it was, oh, you think she comes from this dynastic parentage, but really she actually comes from nothing. Right. And then but then what baffles me is that nobody at Disney had this conversation at the beginning of the trilogy. Like they they hadn't figured this out at the start and kind of told everybody what the plan was. It, it it's just kind of baffling that that wasn't I, something that was discussed at the beginning of the making of this multi billion. Why does she have an English accent? It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, sorry. I, I I firmly believe. Okay, everyone's talking real nice in the press that like in every single interview, Ryan Johnson, J.J. Abrams, everybody is just sort of like, oh yeah, there was never. You know, there were never there was never a plan. We had free reign to do what we wanted. We totally appreciate each other's work. Everybody is is towing the company line. I am really looking forward to the book that comes out ten or twenty years from now that tells the whole story. Because of course there was a plan or there was discussions. Like nobody submitted that script and greenlit it as like, you know, this is gonna be the kickoff of our, you know, multi-billion dollar new trilogy without having some idea about how you were gonna cash in those chips. Um, you know, the same way that, I mean, I, I don't want to go all the way back to Lost, right, which made J.J. Abrams' bones as, like, the sort of, like, enticing mystery box guy. And, I mean, that that show notoriously didn't quite uh, close all the loops, but, like, they had some idea when they started, right? I don't think they, they just dealt themselves a bunch of random cards and then tried to like write their way out of the, the corner they painted themselves into to, to mix a ton of metaphors in one sentence. <laughs> no, I mean, I feel what, like if you what, started what, what with is, a bunch of random it? cards, sorry, a pot, a pot, sorry. Well, my one liner is, is gone now, but here, here's what it was going to be guys. I mean, what are they? A- apocalypse now. <laughs> right. Cause the ending makes so, no sense. Oliver, was that a all... funny joke for you? Are you familiar with the, <laughs> the filmmaking process? Of a bunch the... of, Drug out. No, not a, <laughs> so. So sometimes when you go to Southeast Asia to make a movie, it rains. Oh, <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry, Pete. Oh no, no, it's okay. It doesn't matter. None of this matters. No, none, none <laughs> of it matters. And that's, I think, a great lesson. That's a great lesson of this. Uh, I'm going to give a hot take. Uh, I appreciated the anti-democratic turn of uh, of this film because democracy is boring. You know, I mean, not ours at the moment, but democracy in general, you know, like uh, valuing everyone and like, you know, just like having nothing, you know, that like having no. I see I'm watching this at the same time as I'm watching The Queen on Netflix and like they're so pretty, you know, the royals and all their fancy houses and their nice their nice things. Right. Like and it's the it's the difference between the, you know, I don't know, the the. um the uh drab uh you know drab quarters of the the resistance and the like the awesome white uh bedroom that <laughs> Kylo Ren has, right? Like Thanks it's trolling all of us, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know, he's uh he's got a, a whole like uh, art, you know, museum in there, right? Like it's uh you know, with with artifacts pillaged from lost civilizations in his white museum. <laughs> right? Like that that's you know, that's so great. It's like it's like a it's like a British museum, you know, a, a whole uh <laughs> Just pillaged artifacts from all all civilization. No, um, yeah. no. I I actually I think that uh, I, 
I think that hero stories are useful because of the way we see ourselves as the hero of our own uh, of our own story and the way we sort of necessarily privilege our experience over that of others because we're we're the one having it. And, you know, while we might for political reasons like to think, uh, you know, that stories about how everyone is awesome are awesome they're in fact not awesome because stories about how i am awesome are awesome and that uh is what will always be what will always be awesome so this 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 was a film that was uh, had an almost manic urge to satisfy and i i i looked at it as a move um to more to more satisfaction like to to trying to give more satisfaction I think one missed opportunity in this movie that goes along the lines of what you're saying was like there's that weird part of the movie where, well, we sent out the help, the request for help at the end of The Last Jedi from the salt planet and nobody showed up. And this is a real bummer. And then Lando goes out and sends out a request for help. And then a whole bunch of people come and help Lando. And to a degree, this seems really bizarre, right? That like, oh, but we asked everybody and they said, no, we didn't know that asking everybody again was an option. But I, I would like to point out that there was a possibility there that maybe people would listen to Lando Calrissian, like that he was maybe like an influential or charismatic person or that he like knew a lot of people or that he like, you know, uh, having been an actual general in the previous war, had some cachet that maybe they weren't able to demonstrate on their secret radio mission or maybe people owed him favors or money or maybe he's played by billy d williams but just the, i think that um in much the same way matt that because I, I totally agree with you that the uh, that you it's hard to extract extricate subjectivity from the uh the relationships between protagonists and other characters and stories and that is your own subjectivity the idea that you only experience your own perspective on your own life and you don't see the perspective of through everybody else's eyes really um at the same time there is the idea that that you know different people kind of do different things or are good at different things or uh, you know, have particular talents. And and so not everybody can do or will do everything. I mean, I guess you could say in a metaphysical sense, anybody could do everything, but everybody won't do everything. And and the idea that, oh, we met, what's the value of meeting Lando Calrissian in this story? Lando Calrissian gets deals done. Lando Calrissian has connections, right? Like people love him. It remind what it reminds me of is it reminds me of Hercule, aka Mister Satan, in the Dragon Ball story, right? Where they're trying to beat down on the super bad villain, and uh, and Goku is trying to gather all the energies, or he reaches out telepathically to everybody in the whole world. And they try and and they're just who is this guy? Right. They don't care. They don't know who Goku is. But then Hercule, the big fraud, Mr. Satan, the sort of the guy who's the whole time been a charlatan, but is a big celebrity, reaches out and gives like an earnest and effective, charismatic, motivational speech. And then everybody gives Goku the energy. And I sort of felt like you could have done something like that with Lando in this movie and given him actual skills. Um, And in that sense, the plot points don't bother me so much. Uh, but definitely the underlying question stands the way the movie was actually made, which is sort of like, does that, is everybody going to support you or not? <laughs> it's sort of a floating question, right? Like we can privilege the individual or not privilege the individual, but either way, if every is, is everybody actually going to chip in and like help the good guys? Is that how we're going to beat this thing is kind of a question floating through this movie that is not answered to anybody's satisfaction. I suspect. Yeah. I mean, just to sort of, 
try to connect the dots between eight and nine. So the the arc of Luke Skywalker in eight is that he 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 feels like the Jedi are overrated. He feels like the Jedi have always been a mistake. He he says straight out the Jedi have to die. Um, and then at the end of the movie, he comes to a different place because Yoda gives him a heart to heart. And it seems like now I didn't fully quite get exactly where they were going with eight, but it, it seems like he feels like the legend of the Jedi, the idea of the Jedi being this larger than life hero who has this very sort of theatricality, and you know. Uh, shows up and like you know gets shot at by by all the laser beams in the world and then just brushes off his shoulders in a very cool way has value because the very last scene of um star wars episode eight is like yeah sure the rebel alliance is down to the amount of people that it could fit in the millennium falcon but there are children off on planets all over the galaxy that are retelling the story about how luke skywalker faced down kylo ren in the entire first order and and got away with it with a little smirk mm-hmm. and and i think that might play and here's i'm being very generous to episode nine which i i really felt was very lazy with the plotting but maybe there is something to the idea that a charismatic hero like Luke Skywalker or like a Lando Calrissian can appeal to people's uh, desire to be part of something greater and bring out somebody's heroism in the way that like probably a Morse code distress signal fails to do. <laughs> Certainly Princess Leia sort of plays this role in various ways, but not for the sort of general public. My God. Right. Well, there, well there, there are two major events that you could are, the, the movie doesn't cash either of these out, <laughs> but the, the reemergence of Palpatine, like with this public radio transmission and the death of Princess Leia, the dead speak. Right. You could imagine <laughs> I, that's, or that's both just to get Kylo to come. Right. Right. I think like so. But you could imagine either of those two things combining to get the people to come out of the woodwork to fight for the rebellion. Cause like they, they did, the first order was just kind of this thing, but they all know how bad Palpatine is and they all like Leia. So, okay, now we're going to fight for you, which doesn't really hold up. But I, I think that's like the best explanation for why they came in nine when they didn't come in eight. Also, it doesn't matter because the emperor can just zap them all simultaneously with lightning and disable all their ships. Can, can we can we talk about that real quick? Because I have major <laughs> issues with that. <laughs> so, so okay, so in page one hundred and fifty-five of screenwriting <laughs> screenplay by Sid Feld, it says that you need to have an all is lost moment. <laughs> right? like, exactly, but but so he, here's my issue with that. So in the original trilogy, it the empire is primarily presented as an evil empire that employs space wizards like that has space wizards at their disposal. But in the like first movie in the first movie. And then yeah. even in five and six, like it, we, we, the big reveal is that, Oh, there's a space wizard at the top too. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, maybe he's reason, like a secret space wizard. He, yeah. He's not like people don't really know that he's a space wizard. That's sort of like, like a private thing. Yeah. But like the reason the empire is bad and dangerous is because they have all these ships and people that are willing to do terrible things. Your ships and, and are people like, are and, insignificant next to right. the power of the force. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but at the end, of, but at the end of the day, I remember the guy saying that was called in to solve a logistical problem and like meet a production deadline. Solving like, logistical problems are insignificant <laughs> next to the obtuse and right. inc- the, <laughs> unknowable. The empire is a political forward. problem, right? right it's it's a like a political, political problem and, and people are going at it. I mean, revolution is like a political solution. It's not like a religious cosmological problem. Right. And we find out that there's this religious war like below the surface, but at the end of the day, it's still a political problem. This movie completes the transition where the battle of the wizards is the only thing that matters because regardless of how the the space battle goes, the the space wizards are going to win, win it all for everybody directly 
as opposed to like by moving things behind the scenes. So like, Which, how would you see the scene in Return of the Jedi where the Emperor is sort of showing Luke the fleet being destroyed and kind of talking to him about kind of how insignificant his rebel alliance is? I know it's not the same, so I'm curious if you see a relationship between the sort of the force and the kind of military in the way that that scene plays out. I mean, you could imagine a version of Return of the Jedi where the Emperor successfully converts Luke Skywalker to the dark side just in time for the Death Star to be blown up because the the space battle goes perfectly fine. Right, right, right. right? It was not necessary to defeat the Emperor and kill because because that the wild card where he could shoot the lightning into space and disable the fleet, that wasn't on the table for Return of the Jedi. So they could have won this militarily. And what was going on at the Death Star is basically the subplot about, like, can can I redeem my father? Interesting. Interesting. I, I would have assumed that 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 part of them winning has to be the disabling of the dark side of the force inside the death star. But that's a pretty good point. Like they all would have died anyway. Right. Uh, if once the shield is down, uh, then, uh, then, so I guess Han Solo and princess Leia being on the forest moon is part of the, what makes the difference. I guess the Ewoks are what make the difference ultimately. Yeah. Right. Like, and I, yeah. I really like that part of return of the Jedi that like the evil plan is brilliant. The rebellion, the rebellion is about to be defeated, but the one thing they didn't take into account is this act of kindness towards this sort of primitive species that the emperor considers to be like, not even worth a footnote. And it's the, it's the fact that like the rebels have a certain humanity to them. And they're not just sort of this, this bloodless, you know, uh, technocrats that, that give them this edge that like the emperor, like never saw coming. Right. And I like, I like that being the X factor. And I guess in this movie, the X factor is just Lando Calrissian is one charismatic dude. <laughs> I w- was anyone else disappointed or think that there might've been a draft of the story? Cause they go to the, f- when they go to find the death star crashed, are they on the forest moon of Endor at that point? Oh, I, is I mean, Endor, they have to be, right? Wait, wait. Is Endor the name of the moon, or is Endor the name of the planet that the forest moon is a moon of? I thought. Oh man, I, I'm trying. Didn't I they say something? I can't. Endor. I can't. You know what? I actually can't quote Endor you chapter and verse. But the moon. But this is the first time I'm suddenly considering the fact that that the moon may not have a name, and they're just like, yeah, it's that moon with the forest. It's the forest, and this was this was a different moon because yeah, I was I was a little disappointed that the 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 um, what they found there were the Lost Boys from Hook and yes. not you know and not Ewoks, which would have been especially. Great. Especially because, as you recall from Return of the Jedi, why do the Ewoks help the uh, the the people, right? Why do they help the rebels? They help the rebels because they are so impressed with C-3PO telling them the story of Star Wars, right? C-3PO sits down with all the Ewok children and tells them the story of the blowing up of the Death Star and the defeat of Darth Vader and everything that's happened up at this point. And all the Ewoks are so enthralled with the story that they then join the rebels and they join the side of the rebels and they set up a situation where C-3PO is on Endor but has no memory and they could have met a society which worships him as a god because of his memory of everything that had happened and i just feel like that's up there with like the the scene i imagine in ripd where like uh ryan reynolds dressed up as an old chinese man like meets another old chinese man who like dies and becomes his younger self in terms of like scenes that really should have been in movies but i knew were never going to be in there in the first place but it's like that's like an interesting problem right like like if the if C three PO doesn't remember the Ewoks, are the Ewoks going to help them? Like what's going to happen? 
Um, and certainly this isn't a movie that's running shy on the fan service and the weird references. Like, for example, that Star Wars Burning Man happens only once every 42 years, and 42 years ago is when the first Star Wars movie came out, right? Like, there's all sorts of nonsense like that all through this movie. So hey, you could have given, you know. Chewie got a medal. My friend, yeah, that's true. Chewie got the. Did everybody go? Wow, because like Chewie never At got long the long last. Yeah. <laughs> our long, she, our long galactic medal, nightmare is over. She was alive. I, I, will I guess say, the metal foundry has been destroyed, right? So she doesn't yeah. have any more medals. So she got to wait till she dies, and then you can have her medal. I really, at, at that point where they thought Chewbacca was dead, I think my wife was going to walk out of the movie. <laughs> like, I think it was just like the. That was just so. That was just beyond stupid. Oh my god! Just, you killed Chewbacca, you, you bastards! Uh, I mean, I don't know, Oliver. Do you have an emotional attachment to Chewbacca, or is this just a characteristic of old people? Or do you know um, Chewbacca mostly from the South Park episode where he figures? In that also is ancient. I don't really have like much of a connection to Chewbacca, but I also think that like when they made it seem like Chewbacca died, like. I feel like I, I knew that like he he wasn't actually dead because I just felt like they wouldn't do that, you know. <laughs> yes, yeah. you you were you were thinking, uh, you know, like a Disney movie producer of the merchandising. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean the same way I knew I knew that Red was not Ray was not staying dead. Right, because they, yeah. they have they have a brand new theme park they just built where they have actresses dressed up as Ray that are running around signing autographs for little girls. There's no way that Uncan- they ever chose it with Ray resemblance, there by the way. The and they basement. Yeah. Um, sorry, Matt. I didn't mean to. I, I wanted to piggyback. Like it's 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 actually uncanny the resemblance that the Ray face characters in the the Disney parks have to to Daisy Ridley, and they all also speak with uh, the same British accent. Um, <laughs> I I have another question for for Oliver, not to put him on the spot, but uh, Oliver, yeah. what is your general feeling, general or specific, about F- Poe Dameron and or Finn as characters? Do you like them? Do you dislike them? Like what? Because presumably these are characters that are made to appeal to you. So I'm curious what you think of Finn and Poe Dameron. Um, I think I like. Poe more than Finn because I feel like Finn is like a little too he has like a plan and he really wants to stick to it but Poe's more of like a wild card and okay. like he'll sort of do like whatever in the moment he feels like is right and I think that makes him like a, a better character gotcha so you like Poe Dameron yeah okay interesting see, see I have difficulty picking up like what actually would come through on these guys so that's really interesting that he is that they are coming through to you. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. I appreciate that. Thank you for the insight into the next generation of humanity. Wait, wait. <laughs> much appreciated. Wait, this was the next generation. Oh, oh, this was the next generation of the J.J. Abrams reboot of Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> Star Wars. That's Star Trek. No, no. This. Game, I mean, bro. he did Star Trek also, right? Like it's uh, you know, and now he's done. Now he's done Star Wars, and that's what this is. It's yeah. the next generation. How many years away. How many years away from rebooting Star Trek The Next Generation for the big screen with James McAvoy as Patrick Stewart again? <laughs> <laughs> All right. We've gotten silly. Final thoughts on uh on Star Wars The Last Starfighter. Um I will say 
that I I wrote a whole bunch of preparatory material on the monomythological symbolism of a man who reaches his hand out and doesn't have it chopped off that we didn't get a chance to get to because this movie melted our brains. So perhaps if there's an occasion for it, I will write more about that kind of core uh, visual trope that is repeated many times throughout the uh, throughout the movie. Right. The, the, the average your your chances of having your hand chopped off uh, of our how did you how did you put it in your your slack message about it the average number of times that a star wars protagonist has his hands chopped off is actually greater than one and that's right. you know <laughs> yeah. that is a statistically significant finding <laughs> Right, right, right. <laughs> um, well, wonderful. Thanks very much uh, for for joining me on this, uh, you know, this run at the uh, the you know Emperor at the Harry Potter wizarding world <laughs> i mean you know you think that you think that after how how la- the last movie was all about how going to las vegas or macau is morally bankrupt and you should go on a disney vacation resort vacation instead they made this whole the 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 coolest part of this movie was the visit to the wizarding world of harry potter <laughs> that's uh you know i feel like it's it was such a you know um corporate synergistic uh outlook as they as they must have it it uh it, it seems like a missed opportunity to me i thought it just meant that disney's gonna buy burning man <laughs> yeah there you go walt yeah exactly walt disney burning man no uh it's going to be the star wars burning man parade uh in the you know in the batu uh area of the galaxies at star wars galaxy's edge theme park attraction all right we gotta we gotta leave it there thank you very much uh may the force be with you and uh etc 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 we'll be back next week with more overthinking it podcasts number 600 is uh is next week which will be a clip show of the highlights from the last 600 no i'm kidding we're not we we don't have the capacity to do that um hey guys we're all locked in this room together remember that time we talked about van helsing (laughs) oh we could do it like community like dan Harmon doing the the clip show of things that that never happened apparently that was a very hard episode to to shoot i heard on a uh you know podcast from a panel discussion of community actors because there were like 3,000 scenes in it because they had to recreate all of the non-existent clips from the show. That would, that would be a good, uh, that would be a good bit. We probably will just go watch cats instead, (laughs) which is also really a tribute to the legacy of the overthinking It podcast. Thanks very much to Ben for joining us to Matt and Oliver, uh, for making the time Pete, uh, you're, I don't know if, I don't know if you're the fin to my Poe or the Poe to my fin, but, uh, I guess I try to stick to the plan and you, uh, you improvise. So, so, uh, um, way to go, Poe Dameron. Um, I prefer right. to think of myself as rescue dog droid to your BB-8. So. <laughs> Hello. No, thank you. Bleep, bloop, bleep, bloop, bleep, 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 bloop. And, uh, and now, Matt, it's time to tell me the uh, important thing that you are a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't deserve The only thing that matters from this movie is that Babu Frick survived. Wait, really? Yeah, he pops up in the ship with uh, 
Carrie Russell. Whoa! Oh, why would awesome. Carrie Russell choose to take? Were they friends? Yeah, <laughs> yeah they worked together. <laughs> she 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 is yet another character that you think is dead, but in fact is alive. So don't worry, her and Babu Frick are fine and chilling in their space fighter. I assume John Williams was in the back of the same spaceship. <laughs> 